Welcome back to the Acro Files. The American College of Real Estate Lawyers was founded in 1978. During its 44-year history, it has grown to a national organization of more than 1,000 distinguished real estate practitioners, fostering the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment in real estate. Having completed our first series of seven podcasts with founders of the college, we continue now with individuals who played an important role in the development of the college and the growth of the real estate legal industry, to talk about their observations about the past and to share their insights for the benefit of future generations of real estate lawyers. Today, please join me in welcoming my good friend, Sandy Weiner. Hello, Jay. How are you doing? Good, Sandy. Good afternoon. We're going to talk a little much about your, the college and your role in the college and what you think it meant to you and got out of it and everything. But why don't we start out first with a little bit of history and background about you and your early years. I, I assume um, that you grew up in Texas since you went to undergraduate in that great city of Austin. But tell us a little bit about yeah. your life. Well, I, I am a native Houstonian, born in 1946. I grew up in a family with a uh, two parents, older brother, younger sister. I had a large uh, extended family. Uh, all of my grandparents and all of my aunts and uncles, save one who moved away when I was 13, lived in Houston. Um, fortunately, on my mother's side, my great-grandfather left Russia and came through the port of Galveston to Houston. Uh, on my father's side, they came through New York. My dad and his sister were born there. But Houston is home and had lots and lots of family. And I, I was very fortunate that I was 32 when the first of my grandparents died. So they and my parents were the oldest in their families. So we were among the oldest of the grandchildren. Uh, my father owned a small chain of dry goods stores, uh, primarily for working class people. Um, and his father and brothers were in a very similar but larger business. And my maternal grandfather had a little mom and pop grocery store. So it came up in the family of merchants. So it um, like then going to Austin was the natural thing to do back then? It was somewhat natural um, because my older brother went to University of Pennsylvania uh, and uh, un and it made my parents very unhappy by not coming back and going in the family business. And my parents decided you're not going out of state. So I uh, went to the University of Texas, which turned out to be a wonderful experience and the greatest thing in my life, because that's where I met Leslie. Uh, when it came to law school, although my parents were opposed to the idea of going out of state, when I got into Harvard, that's different. Now, they didn't know from Yale, Columbia, um, Stanford, but Harvard, and then my mother's first cousin, Melvin Dow, who was, an, I think, an actual member, went to Harvard. So that, that was different than going anywhere else. And it was a very, very good experience, among other things, living in another part of the country and meeting a lot of people who I would never have uh, met, um, realizing that uh, just because they were from the Northeast didn't mean they were uh, less provincial than I was. Um, but it had 
fabulous professors, lots of really, really great students. I didn't have a lot of close friends from law school, but had at least three who were very good friends who were still very good friends today. So why law school? especially coming out of a family business? Um, I would say when I was in my 30s, I came to realize that a major reason why I became a lawyer because my great uncle, my maternal grandmother's brother, Harry Dell, was a lawyer. Um, his two sons, Melvin and Bernie, I think were both actual members. But Harry Dow was a person who was very well respected very ethical, highly regarded. And I think in my mind, that's those are things that I wanted to be. And uh, he was the family's lawyer. And there was at least one occasion in which my father was advised by someone, you need to do X, which he was uneasy with. He went to Harry Dell and Harry said, Uncle Harry said, Abe, I'm not going to do that and you shouldn't do it. And that was the end of the discussion when Uncle Harry said you shouldn't do something, that was the nine zip decision of the Supreme Court. So that's, <laughs> I think, the model of what I thought a lawyer was. Okay. So when you got up to law school, did you go, I can't remember, did you go straight through? Yes. Okay. So did you, I assume, given what you said about the familial pressures about returning to base, did you work in the summers in Texas? Um, I, uh, I graduated college in 1968. That's when graduate deferments were eliminated and it was before the lottery. So I had to get into ROTC in order to avoid getting drafted. And I succeeded in not getting drafted. Uh, so my first summer was, um, between college and law school was at Fort Benning, Georgia, which was the worst experience of my life. And my second summer between first and second year was at Indian Town Gap Military Reservation in Pennsylvania, which was like a country club compared to um, uh, being in Georgia. Uh, and uh, between second and third year, I uh, clerked at Vincent and Elkins where I practiced for 47 years. And at the time there were five summer clerks. Um, they didn't quite know what to do with us. Um, I worked in four different practice groups, including working on an amicus brief for the Supreme Court uh, on an attorney client privilege matter in which the court decided uh, they just let the, uh, the Seventh Circuit case uh, hold. They decided on a 4-4 procurium basis. So the ABA for whom my firm was writing the brief got nowhere with its issue. Um, but I did get a chance to sample different practice groups. And ultimately, the decision to go into real estate was not just because I was interested in real estate, but the people in that group were people I thought, I want to spend the next few decades of my life working with these folks. And it was a very good decision for me. So when you came back after graduating from Harvard, um, I assume that was a time um, where you didn't have to choose like, like you know, young lawyers do today when they start choose a practice group. 
um, that you could experiment? Did you go right into real? And you were really a real estate finance lawyer, of course, much broader than just a certain lawyer. But how did you get started in the beginning? Well, it, we did not have a rotation. There are some firms that do have rotations. There, there were people who did decide they wanted to try a different practice area. But I went right into a group that did primarily real estate. I had wonderful mentors who really cared about me, one of whom the, um, the senior partner in the group, Dan Arnold, who was, a, I think, one of the charter members of ACRL, um, though he wasn't active, um, and genuinely cared about the people who worked for him and looked out for them. Um, little things like when we otherwise probably couldn't qualify for a mortgage loan for a house, he would make sure that we got the mortgage loan. Um, if your family, he had a family member who was in the hospital for some reason and they couldn't get a private room, he made sure you got a private room. Um, he had a nickname, the Godfather, who'd make things like that happen. But he also strongly believed in give back. I mean, he would say, maybe not in these words, but you're lucky to be where you are and you owe something to society and to the legal profession. And that got me started working on CLE, uh, starting by writing speeches for first drafts of speeches for partners and then giving speeches. And giving speeches at CLE really was very important in making me a better lawyer. Well, tell us why. Well, first of all, the old saying is the best way to learn a subject is to teach it. And then I would be on uh, speaking panels with other people who I might not otherwise have been exposed to and went to more CLA programs. This is long before it was required. Um, and then you get a reputation for being, you know, this is a guy you want to go here on this subject. Um, and it gives you an aura of perhaps being better than you are, but when you, you're the speaker on subjects, particularly arcane subjects, um, then people think you're a real expert and think that expertise bleeds into other things. So, you know, that's a really interesting point that of course we still talk about and now maybe struggle with today about how to get lawyers to take on, they have to do CLE, as you said, it was now it's required, but, but that's taking courses. That's not speaking and giving courses. And your, your observation there about how it made you a better lawyer, it seems to me, is one of the real lessons for um, you know, the, the, the younger lawyers out there. I think it's a very important lesson. Uh, skipping ahead, I, I think the pressures on younger lawyers to bill hours and to uh, develop business um, is making it harder and harder for them to do CLE. I, I spoke to a lawyer in our uh, practice group, my firm's practice group in Dallas, and he said, look, you don't get any credit when it comes to sharing ratios for giving speeches. You do get credit for developing business and for billable hours. And I'm not going to take time away from my family to do something that I don't think helps me in moving up. I mean, he was very crass, but very honest. 
And I think that's what young lawyers are doing. I, again, back in the early days, my mentor, um, primary mentor, really encouraged it. And uh, that made a big difference. So, so you've talked a little bit about one aspect of mentoring, which is an important one, which is caring about the people, caring for and caring about the people that you mentor. What, what else in, in, the, in your sort of professional development piece of that did your mentors do for you? And, and what did you do when you were mentoring, mentoring younger people? Well, we got, as a young lawyer, we got a lot of responsibility and a lot of contact with clients. It was um, jokingly said about a mentor is his idea of uh, teaching you was to say, you're here, there's a pool, you need to be over there, jump in and get there. Um, it wasn't quite that harsh, but it was uh, given a lot of responsibility and he could see if you could take the responsibility. And if you could take the responsibility, you got more responsibility and you got to work on more deals. Um, uh, sometimes um, being in the right place at the right time when some partner has just gotten the phone call from a client that he needs something to do, be done and done quickly. If you happen to be in the hallway, then that partner, I'm talking generally about the firm, calls you in and says, I need you to do this. And sheer luck that you were at the right place at the right time, but don't underestimate sheer luck. It's, uh, it's more important than you think. Um, but I think being given opportunities to work on different kinds of deals, um, you need to fight in the early years to being pigeonholed as doing just one kind of real estate deal. So to get a lot of different experience, while we had one real estate section, there were a lot of other lawyers in the firm that did real estate or real estate finance. And I had a chance to work with lots of different partners in different groups. And I think I learned a little bit from each of them as to how they approach matters. Uh, there's no one right way to do it, but learning from a lot of different people was very helpful and sort of building up, okay, I can remember how so-and-so did this and that makes sense to me. Okay, great. Let, let's talk a little bit about the college. I mean, I've now learned today that not only are you the father of an Acrofellio, but you're a nephew of, of some Acrofellios. So this uh, is- Actually, first cousin once removed. Okay, first cousin. Okay, but we'll, 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 it's another generation, let's say. So. Um, so it's great that we've got maybe three generations of ACRO represented here. It was wonderful. I remember when, when David was uh, not only joined, but has just become a great and active fellow following in your footsteps. So you, you joined the college, I think, in 1982, and you were president of the college in 2003. Right. So, so you, tell us a little bit about you know, what the college meant in those early years and how it helped you. Well, first of all, I think, I thought it was a great honor, probably appeals to the ego a little bit. Um, and I didn't know a lot of ACRO members other than the, the few from Texas, other than Larry Preble, who I had been on a PLI program with. And I just think the world of Larry. Uh, Larry was a great lawyer and a gracious person and, um, 
I wanted to be more like Larry Preble, um, which most people do, and most of us haven't gotten there. But uh, it was an opportunity to be in a national organization when you've had basically a local practice, a, you know, within your state, and being a national organization, you start meeting people who were in important positions, either in law departments or in law firms. Uh, I got exposure to uh, a different kind of CLE than I could within the state. I mean, not totally different, but seeing how things are done in other places and realizing issues that we don't have in Texas that you might have in California or New York or such and such, which become very important as you move up and you're doing more multi-state deals. Um, I got involved in the program committee and eventually chaired the program committee and, you know, again, got to see behind the curtain of how things are put together and how the organization uh, works. Um, for some reason, I got put on the executive committee uh, as the non-elected officer and then um, was, you know, moved, moved up. Um, another aspect of ACRL that on a very personal level, I've made a number of friends who I miss seeing. So we're going to come to Charleston, not because I need CLE credit or not because it's deductible. It's not. Um, but I want to see my friends. And uh, we've had some very very close personal friendships, a lot of other that I would say were close, not necessarily very close, but I really liked being with those people and I miss being with them. And uh, part of why we went to as many ACRO meetings as we did, particularly later in my career, is Leslie and I wanted to see our friends. And uh, the topic was not as relevant the place we're going was nice, but we just wanted to see friends. And that became a really important part of ACRO for us. Uh, another thing that I think is important for ACRO is you have a referral network, not necessarily that you'll get a lot of referrals, but when you have the 10 minute question at an early part of a deal and you need to find out some very basic things about such and such state, you can call someone and you can get five or 10 minutes on the phone. It may result in a referral to them, it may not, but that's really invaluable to find out more about what the law and the practice is in other states. And I would not have had that without ACRL. So you, you sort of, you know, and I'm just a few years behind, bridge the gap. I've talked to John Hollyfield, who you've mentioned, and Larry and Howard Kane and Morty and others about. When, you know, in the early years, there were no national law firms, right? And those guys and some, some girls in the beginning needed a network when clients were, were growing from, you know, regional to national multi-state clients. And the world's different today with big firms like Vincent and & Elkins and Norton Rose and, and us and Ballard and lots of others with national footprints. Um, and, and I think people wonder what if, if ACRL is as important and valuable to their practices today in the current environment as it was before there were big national law firms? Well, I would answer, number one, not every law firm has an office in every state with real estate lawyers there. 
Um, and it's, it's somewhat likely that you will have a property or deal in a state where there's, your firm has no real estate lawyer. Um, and sometimes it's, uh, you really want someone who is thoroughly versed in the law and the practice in a particular jurisdiction, even though you might have someone who says he's a real estate lawyer or she's a real estate lawyer. Um, I'm sorry for being a little cynical there, um, but you really want the comfort of talking to someone who you know is one of the leaders in the profession in that state. And that feeling of confidence in the person you're talking to is really important. Yeah, no, and I, look, I, I also think um, that even in, I mean, you're of course 100% right that there's many, many ACRO members who are not in large national firms, but even in the big firms, and I think that Don or um, maybe a few people have said this during these discussions that, you know, there's always benefit talking to people in other firms who are doing the same or similar deals. And, and that was one of the big big positives of going to actual meetings, particularly before we had all these virtual committee meetings and things to talk to people about what else was going on out in the market, getting their perspective. Again, I think that's, that's very valuable. Um, I, I have not participated in committee activities in the last, you know, since I retired, but sometimes sitting in a committee meeting and you start hearing things that are very new and they're, they're really, it hasn't permeated the market yet, but you start thinking about, okay, what are the issues that would happen come up in this? Um, so I think that's that's very, very valuable. Yes, and, and I will tell you, right, because you, you've not seen this probably, that one of the silver linings of the you know horrible consequences of COVID was the committee meetings all went virtual and all, and in many cases, began monthly meetings um, and the and the exchange on those monthly Zoom calls, which which continue today and like will continue, I think, for the indefinite future, um, has created this wonderful um, forum for very experienced lawyers, by definition, in the college to exchange ideas. It was wonderful in the early stages of COVID on the leasing committee, talking about what people were seeing. Uh, you know, with all the cases being filed on force majeure and everything, and getting the opportunity to have those discussions, you know, in, um, in, in, in you know, uh, on these Zoom calls that we would not otherwise have had, even if we had had the meetings. There's a limited amount of time at meetings, and you inevitably have two committees that you're interested in that are meeting at the same time, and you have to choose which you're going to go to. So this is, uh, I think, is a blessing in disguise. Yes, I, I agree with you. So so ACRL is an organization that both you and I have great affinity for and, 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 and thankfulness for. What about other organizations that, that um, you know, real estate lawyers have been involved with? Did you spend time, you know, at ABA or CSC or um, any of the other ones? Um, I actually, I was not a member of the ABA when I got involved in, Ackroll. I did join the ABA probably because I felt a need to do so. I worked on one subcommittee. I didn't find it very rewarding. Given conflicting demands on time, I chose to, to concentrate on Ackroll. Then in 
1998 or 1999, I was invited to ARPI. Uh, again, that was a, a nice experience. I got a chance to meet some people who I would not have otherwise met, uh, made a few friends across the pond, got to go to lots of nice places. Uh, the CLE there was not of the quality of Acro. Um, uh, by being comparative, uh, um, you didn't get as much focus unless you had UK uh, matters that you're handling. Um, and and it, I, I didn't think it measured up to, and then there were also a lot of what I would call strictly business kind of issues as opposed to legal issues that were discussed. But, but I enjoyed um, RP. I think I was US treasurer and secretary or whatever, uh, had no aspiration to move up to be chair. Enjoyed doing it, but I don't know that I'll be going to another meeting, assuming that there are meetings. Okay. So let, let's just talk. a question of time and expense. Right. I, I agree. And great people and lots of great organizations. So you had an incredible career. I'll, I'll never forget, I mean, as I said before when we were chatting, you know, you were much more than just a real estate transactions lawyer. I'll never forget your your presentations at the college on synthetic leasing when when I think nobody quite understood what synthetic leasing was and, and you tried to teach that large crowd of very smart people about it. But what 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 are what, what what are the highlights of some of the most interesting you know one or two transactions that you worked in um, when you were practicing? Um, well one was uh, actually it was two it was for the same client um, who was a very wealthy family that made their money in the pipeline business and uh, invested in some downtown buildings. If one transaction was a single building uh, for low uh, nine figures and one was two buildings for mid uh, nine figures. And they were very interesting. And we had opposite me were lawyers uh, for Baker Botts. Uh, and one of whom I knew very well, one of whom was from Dallas. Um, during one of the meetings with uh, the, the lawyer from Houston, the general counsel of our client leaned over to the associate general counsel who had experience in real estate and says, I can't believe that these two lawyers are not fighting each other. They're trying to find solutions. And I said, that's what we're supposed to do. The most fun, of a deal is working with a really smart lawyer on the other side who doesn't feel insecure, knows that he knows what he's doing, knows that, that you have a reputation for knowing what you're doing, whether you that's true or not. And you get to points where both clients wanna make a deal, where you see there's major problems and you talk to each other, okay, here, three different solutions. And then you can present it to the client. Here are three different solutions that I've talked to opposing counsel. Here are what I see the ramifications of each of them. And, you know, he's going to his client, I'm going to you. Let's see, what, what, what do you think is the best or least bad way for you to approach this issue? And that is helping clients. It's not grandstanding, it's not yelling and screaming. And knowing that the lawyer on the other side 
might be in the next deal with you and what goes around comes around. And if you respect people, they tend to respect you more. Uh, one of the most complicated deals, several deals that involve leases, um, the most important of which were headquarters leases for Vincent and Elkins. The last deal I worked on as a, a lawyer was uh, the headquarters lease, uh, not, the Houston office lease uh, in a building that Heinz was building and you know, that nothing had been done yet to, to build it. And I had done the last lease in the building we were moving out of and there used to be an expression OPM, other people's money. And this was OPM is our partner's money. And you became very, very concerned about issues. And then you inevitably have partners who know nothing about real estate, who will approach you and tell you they heard such and such and such and such. Or they want you to hire a broker who they know, who when we interview him, find out had never done a law firm lease and had never done a corporate headquarters lease. Um, some other complicated deals, um, the sale of a very old refinery in which I'm not going to name the client, but it's very unpleasant dealing with them. I was the real estate lawyer on the overall sale. So I wasn't the lead lawyer. An M&A lawyer was the lead lawyer. But since it was a um, asset deal, uh, we had to do a, a lot of work on real estate. And someone pointed out that one of the deeds in the chain of title had been signed by John D. Rockefeller. Um, <laughs> another deal, the largest deal I ever worked on again, not as the lead lawyer, but the, the head real estate lawyer was the TXU deal that was um, leveraged buyout of a utility company headquartered in, uh, in Dallas. And it had numerous power plants and I had to deal with a, an associate at a very fine, um, New York law firm who was haranguing us about uh, the surveys not being of the quality and the requirements that they have. And finally, I figured out that the way to get to him is five of the 12 power plants, each of five of the 12 power plants was bigger than the island of Manhattan. So I said, look, if you were going to do a deal that involved all of the island of Manhattan, would you require that? Well, of course not. Okay. Well, let me pick up on that. Let's go. You made some interesting observations about how um, you work with people across the table, right? And I agree with you that the, the toughest deals get done the best way when there's a lot of smart people around the table for all, all the reasons that earlier. What's your advice of when you, you, you mentioned it you know, a couple of times, right? When you've got somebody across the table who's not in that category, whether they're smart or not, but they're either have to prove how smart they are, they have to pound the table to show their client that they're representing their client to the you know, greatest um, extent possible. How do you get those kinds of deals on track to closure, which is, of course, what we're all in the game to do? Um, well, one thing is that one of my other mentors said about negotiating and don't try to win every deal, he says, the lawyer on the other side has a report card for his client or his client will give him a report card. You need to give him something. And again, him was because it was 
primarily men at the time. You have to give him something that he can report to his client that he won. So sometimes it's figuring out what is the thing that's least important to your client that is important to the other side. And so, okay, I give in, you win. Um, sometimes it's just um, biting your tongue and, and hoping that you can get enough of it done that the clients will perhaps see uh, that they need to take over on certain issues. Um, there, I don't think there's one magic formula to it, but, but the important thing that this other mentor said is don't try to win everything. It's right. just it make it very hard. Okay. So let's talk a little bit, even though I know you've been out of the practice for a little bit, but you know from everything going on and from your family and David, I mean, the, the profession is at a, and, and, and office services, right? Office professionals are at a inflection point, maybe, um, with where we're working from um, and, and what the return to office scenario will look like over the next X years. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to predict when people are coming back and what we're doing, but given what we've been talking about, I would be interested in like, hearing your observations about why it's important to be in the office, um, whether it's three days a week, four days a week, five days a week, but why it's important to be in the office with other people um, for some critical amount of time in your career. Well, number one, informal learning, being around people you will hear them talk about something. And it, it, when you're young enough, unlike me, it's somewhere in the back of your brain and that issue may come up and you will, uh, aha, this is how so-and-so address that issue. Being there when deals are being handed out in the sense, you know, the, the, the partner who just got the call from the client and you're around and you get to work on it because that's the way you learn. I mean, I had a great law school education, wouldn't trade it for anything, but the, I learned to be a lawyer by practicing law. Um, learning about your firm's culture. Um, it's hard to read about culture. You have to witness culture. Um, when people see you, it is easier to work with people who you think you know. Sometimes you're going out to lunch with them um, it's the social interaction. When I was a young lawyer, there was a lot more social interaction with couples. Um, and it, over a period of time, I think as you get more involved in your kids and what your kids are doing and uh, non-lawyer um, uh, organizations, etc., you don't have as much time for that. But socializing, I think there's a real value in socializing. Um, sometimes you're, you're from a very different background than someone else. And it's helpful to know people as people individually and not just as, well, he is so-and-so, so I'm going to cubbyhole him or her in, in that way. Um, in the world that we live in, where women are at least 50% of law school graduates. Um, I don't know that they're 50% of law firm members, but learning on how to deal one-on-one -on -one with women who are your peers is very helpful. 
um, you may know women socially, but but women as your peers in your profession, I just think there's a benefit to doing that. Um, people from other countries, um, knowing more people with different backgrounds is very helpful. Uh, going back to the women issue, when I was the chair of professional development at the firm, I had just read Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and which was very telling. And I arranged for a speaker, a professor from Brown University, who came and spoke to us. And my target audience was the 40 and 50 year old male partners who needed to understand that decisions about who is going to get hired are more and more being made by female general counsels, associate general counsels, CFOs, etc. And the way that you interact with people, you might think is if that's okay, it's not okay. So I think uh, that's off on a tangent, but but just realizing that as a broad general proposition, girls are brought up in one way and boys are brought up in another way. Uh, I have we have boy and girl twins, and. It was astonishing to me at an early age how different they were. Um, and But realize this is not an old boys network. It, it was at one time. It's better that it's not. And let's get used to it. Great. Great, great advice. So let, let, let me, let's wrap up with just a couple of two, two, two questions. So you're, as I've said, in your career, it was a, uh, you know, great for to watch and, and, and lucky for me that I got to um, interact with you and, and learn from you over the years at Acro. If, if you looked back now um, and you could choose a different profession, what would you choose? I don't know what I would choose. Um, inheriting was not really in the cards. Um, I lost the lucky sperm contest. But that's so. not Right. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what I would do. I, conceivably, being a professor, um, economics professor, I, I don't know. Uh, it's just once I started down, basically, I grew up where everyone was merchant. And that was really what I wanted to do. And I like the idea of being in a learned profession. I like the intellectual challenge. Um, I, I never wanted to be a litigator. I always wanted to be in transactions, but you're sort of, you're involved in the business side, but you're, you're not the business person. Uh, and, and you don't have your own capital at risk, which is very helpful. Can, can I interject one, one thing that's, that wasn't on the list, but just one thing that Acrel has done, I don't know if it's still doing, and it's a tribute to Carol Wellburn, because she is the one who insisted that we do the community service projects. Um, and I remember painting in a school in Los Angeles. I was doing the, the uh, uh, I guess, the very simple part. Leslie was doing the fine part in, in another room. Uh, and then when I was president, we did the Habitat for Humanity house. New Orleans. 
in New Orleans. And we had decided that in order to do this, we would need to raise a lot of money. So we formed the Aqua Foundation and we raised, we sought to have $25,000 for the 25th anniversary. We raised $50,000. Most of us who were there worked on the project. Um, I had the task of working on a, a cinder block fence. And I made a comment, I was asked at the meeting how I felt. I said, well, every part of my body is aching and I feel great. Uh, and I didn't mean this to be funny. People thought it was funny. It says somehow I had an identity with my ancestors building pyramids in Egypt. Um, we, we built this, we helped to build a house for a family where the husband had been convicted of murder and was on death row and he was innocent and another law firm took the project and and uh, got him off. And I asked him, is this the first? I said, you've probably lived in other houses. He said, no, I've never lived in a house in my life. Um, you're still there, Sandy, you're, you're, you're okay. Okay, can you see me? Yes, yes. Okay, sorry. Well, You'll be pleased to know that Aquapairs lives on. Okay. Thanks to Carol and Wayne and you and others. Adam Weisberg's done an incredible job with it the last few years. We did a second habitat, um, um, I think in New Orleans again, when we were back there a few years ago. And the foundation lives on too. And uh, 2003 was that year, I remember, that was the, that was the 25th anniversary. And it yes. was a wonderful thing we did. So yeah. my... Last question for you is, if you could post a sign with some, you know, takeaway or advice by the registration desk at the next ACWA meeting, what would it say? You made a smart decision to come here. Um, get involved in committees. Um, find a topic that you're willing to speak on. Um, meet a lot of people because there's a lot of really good people here. Um, I guess that's what the sign would say. That's terrific. Sandy, um, can, can I comment on one other thing that you was one of the questions you asked and then I'll, I'll let you go, is um, uh, trends, at least what they were when I was practicing. I think one of the trends is a lot of concepts from the M&A world have found their way into real estate and real estate finance, such as the, in the area of reps and warranties and remedies and, and caps and floors and um, things like that. I, I learned a lot by being the real estate lawyer on M&A deals where I would get the uh, M&A agreement and said, okay, here's, look at section such and such and I said I'll, I'll be glad to look at that section but I need to look at the definitions and I need to look at these other sections to see how it all fits together and some of the brightest most sophisticated M&A lawyers have no clue whatsoever about how to state a rep and warranty about real estate and about title insurance 
uh, and what are what's the warranty and representation, what's a covenant, what's a condition. All first year contracts class um, came back. But it, again, I would say M&A concepts bleeding into real estate is a trend that I think will likely continue. I agree. Danny, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Um, I think you've provided just terrific insight and thoughts that many people will benefit by listening to. And uh, we look forward to seeing you and Leslie in Charleston. Okay, good. Thanks very much. Thank you.